Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, and I'm really excited for this week's guest. It's just such a good story, and a guy who's got such passion and absolute love, not only for his service, but for veterans today. And he's a guy who's heavily involved in the political scene. Always a conversation I enjoy having, so we'll get to him in a few moments. But remind you guys about our quest, if you will. To get to a thousand subscribers on YouTube, a thousand followers on Instagram and on Twitter, continue to grow this Hazard Garden community. Make sure you tell friends. Make sure you guys are following us on all the social media sites. Keep up the interaction. Keep the guest suggestions coming. We love to hear from people. I get feedback on my personal Twitter, my personal Instagram at Mark Zino, M A R K Z I N N O. If you want to follow me there, but you know, people always reach out and tell me how much they enjoy the podcast, enjoy the guests, and I certainly appreciate hearing from all of you out there. Make sure you guys get to our website. HazardGround.com. You can click on that Amazon banner at the bottom. Do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you spend, and we donate it right back to some of the great charities you've heard. But also, make sure you check out our books list on the website, HazardGround.com. A lot of time now during this uh, time of year, we get winter breaks and spring breaks coming up. People doing a lot of traveling. So if you're going to get cozied up on a warm beach somewhere, make sure you check out our book list and grab one of the books by one of our guests. Every book on that list was from a guest on the Hazard Ground podcast. So certainly not only are you supporting those individuals, but supporting veterans all over the place by helping us out as well. So check out the book list. And then finally, just a quick observation of stuff I've been seeing going on, not only in the political realm, but just kind of in society. You know, there is so much divisiveness going on between the left and the right, Republicans and Democrats, as we head down this 2020 road to a presidential election this coming November. I just want to remind everybody that we're all in this thing together. And I think veterans and our community are the one thing everybody agrees upon as far as helping to bring people together. There is such a push these days to support veterans. There's such a push these days to help the military and and make sure that the military is being taken care of and veterans are being taken care of like no other before. Let's use that to help bridge the gap, bridge the divide between people who don't necessarily see the same things, and remind them what we fought for, what we all signed up for, is much greater than a political belief or a political leaning in this scenario. Politics is messy. It's ugly. It's a contact sport. And no one really wins when the only thing that leaves us at the end is feeling disappointed and dissatisfied. So veterans, let's band together. Let's be strong. Let's make sure we are the voice that people are hearing and taking the lead as we have throughout our military career. And you're going to hear some of that coming up from our next guest right here. Our guest this week is a retired Army Staff Sergeant. Also, he is a Green Beret. After his multiple deployments to Afghanistan, Iraq, and North Africa, he left the military to go on to become an entrepreneur, marketing professional, author, and investor. He is a fantastic follow on Twitter and certainly now continuing the fight in the political realm. He is Robert Patrick Lewis joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Robert, good to talk to you, brother. How you been? Hey, Mark, brother. Thanks for having me. Okay. The other interesting thing about you is that you actually reached out to me on Twitter um, to tell your story, which I love. I wish more vets would do that. You know, a lot of people are kind of waiting to be asked. I'm, I'm grateful that you want to tell your story because 
uh, everything that you've went through throughout your career not only is interesting to me, but just in your post-military career life, you're certainly still you know, representing veterans and still fighting the fight, and I, I think that's outstanding that you decided to reach out to us. That said, go back to the beginning. Tell us how and why you got in the military. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty long story. I was actually the first guy in my family that wasn't going to go into the military. Uh, I come from a long line of military guys. It's just something that all the men in my family do, and uh, we don't have one particular branch. You know, there's a lot of families out there that grandpa was Marine, dad was Marine, so I'm a Marine. We hop all over the branches. Uh, grandpa was uh, Army in World War II and then served, and he went to World War II in the infantry, and then it was in the Army Security Agency for every war up until uh, Vietnam. And uh, his brother was a Marine, and then the Marines became an Army. I guess he got smart. And then, uh, you know, cousin Air Force, stepsister uh, Navy, brother-in-law Navy, we just hop all over the different branches. But I was the first guy that wasn't going to do it. Uh, I, I was a kid. I was just enthralled with the military, loved everything. I grew up in Texas, so we used to go out from as long back as I can remember. We'd go play in the woods, and we'd go play G.I. Joe. I'd get all decked out. You know, we had a bunch of old Army equipment from my grandpa. My dad was a Navy pilot, so I had a bunch of his stuff, and I just loved it. Uh, then my mom died when I was a preteen, and I just kind of went off the deep end and started getting into a lot of trouble. Went from straight A honor student, kind of athlete and all that stuff, to just finding more trouble than anything else. And uh, finally went over the edge and got sent to military school. And uh, that kind of destroyed my <laughs> my dream of wanting to grow up and be a soldier because I just really did not like military school. So I was going to be the first guy in my family in a long time. I went off to civilian college instead of um, a military, you know, service university like my, uh, like my, most of my family did. And uh, then 9-11 happened, my sophomore year of college. And uh, it was one of those real come-to-Jesus moments. You know, my dad, when he got out of the Navy, he was a commercial pilot. And so 9-11, woke up in the morning and saw what was going on. And immediately, that was, you know, my biggest fear was, oh, my God, my dad. And uh, that fear, you know, finally got a hold of him, found out he was okay, and that slowly turned to anger. Uh, you know, that's, you grew up in a military family. You grew up uh, patriotism is just as part of a life as breathing and eating. Uh, and so I knew that that was kind of my sign, that I wasn't going to to break the family chain. Uh, so I started doing a lot of research. And it's just the type of person I am. I just I like uh, knowing exactly what is out there and finding out everything. So I started researching everything. and. I looked at the Marines, you know, Marine infantry looked pretty good. I liked the force recon, you know, they were kind of seemed really cool, a little mysterious. It was really hard to find it, a lot of information on them. And then we started seeing pictures of Green Berets with beards on horseback, dressed just like the Taliban, taking the fight to the enemy. And I started researching a lot about Green Berets. And I thought, whoa, that's okay. That's pretty cool. That's exactly where I belong. So I was always kind of a, I was a very creative, kind of out of the box, non-traditional type thinker bit of a rebellious streak, you know, really good athlete. I had a predilection for knowledge or for languages. My uh, dad is a commercial pilot. I grew up traveling. You know, my dad would just take us out of school on a, for Friday and we would just go travel somewhere. I had a, you know, family that lived in Asia. I had family that lived in so we just, I traveled everywhere my whole life. So that whole kind of have gun, will travel mantra of the, of the Grand Rays, I knew that was my thing. But the 18 extra program didn't exist yet. So I signed up uh, very shortly after 9-11. I signed up. I did the delayed entry program. I was already in college. Uh, so they signed me up. So a month after I graduated, I would leave for the military. 
signed up for a ranger contract because I thought that was the best way, you know, go be a ranger for a couple of years, go to selection, become a green Beret. And uh, I think it was when I finally got to MEPS, I had somebody look at me and went, you know, we have this thing called the 18 X-ray uh, contract. What would you think about special forces? And I went, well, yeah, that's my ultimate goal here. But I mean, like, I, I got to go somewhere first. You know, no, 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 we have an 18 X-ray uh, contract. You can go and do infantry basic training, airborne school. And if you do well, uh, we can send you to a weed out course to make it through that. You're a selection, you make it through that, and you go to the Q course to become a Grand Marine. So I signed up a month after I graduated college. I uh, went off to infantry basic training, slugged it all the way through, became an 18 Delta. So um, two years after I graduated college, I showed up to my first ODA. Pretty impressive. Uh, and that's that's a fast track. And this is all prior to or right after 9-11. And the only reason I bring that up is because, you know, the the amount of special forces at the outset of the war that we needed, we didn't know we needed as many as we did. I mean, obviously, three and four and five years into both Iraq and Afghanistan, we realized how much, you know, that tip of the spear was necessary. So they started recruiting more for that. But you got a chance to kind of cut the line, so to speak, and, and not go the traditional path prior to the need being there. Yeah. And it's, it's not just not knowing that we needed it. You know, that's one thing that it's always, it's been detected pretty well in movies and it's pretty accurate is that a lot of the conventional military, especially conventional leaders really, really don't like special forces. So there was a very long time since its inception, uh, you know, post OSS where the conventional military, if you left conventional and you went over to the special operations or specifically special forces side, it destroyed your career. It was one of those things where the officers in uh, Vietnam that went over to special forces knew they would never really make it beyond major, you know, because it mm-hmm. just it was it was a, it was the kill it was just that's all it was it killed your career. And then once we realized, I think it was Desert Storm where they started to realize just how valuable special forces and special operations were, you know. And then of course when uh, they sat down planning you know, post nine eleven and they realized what we had to do that we had no real hard targets to go after. This was going to have to be an on-the-ground partnering with the indigenous forces, uh, indigenous forces, and going in there. They realized just how much we needed special operations for that kind of thing. And you know, there's these things we call the soft truths. One of the big soft truths is that, uh, of course, humans are more important than their hardware, but you cannot create soft forces after an emergency event, right? So right. that's unfortunately lack of of people that we needed. And they had to start turning them out as quickly as they could. Now, unfortunately, like in 18 Delta, I spent a year in the medical course alone. Right. You know, so there's a very finite amount of people you can create without really uh, getting rid of the standards. Because that's that's one of those catch-22s is that you need them fast. But if you try to turn them out too fast to reduce the standards, you're not going to get the people you need. Uh, so it really, and I, I, I was very impressed coming from, so I had a business degree before I went into the military and coming from a business degree and understanding kind of efficiency and logistics and stuff like that, seeing how quickly special forces changes the Q course. I mean, in real time, it will change the media course, the 18 Delta course, the medical course was phenomenal with this. After every single section you would go through, you'd have this long questionnaire uh, asking us, how much did you learn? What was the best part? What did you learn the best? What did you have trouble with? And in each rotation, they would change the class based on all those different inputs from all the students that went through. And uh, the 18 Delta course is one that has 
it's got nutrition rate on par with the selection. That's tough because I mean you've got a they're trying to put you through medical school in a year. Yeah. And it's it's nuts. It's just as much hands on as it is cerebral. And um that just that that really blew my mind. When I was in the Q course, they changed the order. So for a long time they had the very traditional phase one, two, three, four, five, and six. And you know, they had the progression of the courses you went through. And when I got to the medic course and I got to uh, phase three for me, they changed everything. <laughs> really? So it's it just it was amazing. In real time, they realized what they needed. I had uh so I was a medic, my roommates, um, I ended up halfway through the Q course moving into an apartment off base with my buddies. And they were both 18 Bravos. So before I graduated the medic course, they were already on ODAs, which, you know, talk about uh, killing your uh, killing your tribe there. Right. Um, <laughs> but they said that, you know, as weapons sergeants, they went through and they were in their Robin Sage, which is called the largest unconventional warfare exercise in the world, right? It's where Green Berets really learn what being a Green Beret is, where you're dropped into the middle of the woods in North Carolina, you link up with guerrilla forces, and for a month, you train them and you act out these war exercises. It's, it's traditionally what a Green Beret is supposed to be. And when they were going through that, they had a bunch of 50 guys cycle back, and every Green Beret, if you do 20 years at some point, not every, but nearly every has to go back and teach at some point, because you want guys have, that have the on-the-ground experience training the next level of warfighters that are going to go out there and, and, and hit the battlefront. And so they had these fifth group guys that came back that had been on the Afghan invasion, and they went around uh, Robin Sage, and they had the guys doing all this Vietnam-era level tactics. And uh, these guys from fifth group went, hey, this, this isn't what we're doing. This is so far, this is, this, this is Vietnam era stuff. All of our stuff had to change. We're in the desert, not the jungles now. And so they revamped the entire thing. They had to go through and start changing up the tactics, changing up the exercise, changing up what they were training the next um, you know, uh, graduate class to, to be ready for. Uh, and it really is. It's, it's phenomenal to see that kind of stuff. It's, you know, what's phenomenal to me is, and, and it's funny, compare civilian world to the military, right? And the word that comes to mind here is agility, right? We're an agile force. That's one of the best attributes about us. And when it comes to the civilian world, to change something like that quickly would take months to a year. And oh, yeah. we in the military sometimes lament how long it takes them to implement the new freaking ACFT, right? It's been three years in the making. Yeah. How, how long it takes them to implement a new uniform, right? There's little stuff like that. But when it comes to this, the agility and the ability to transition a force in that short a time, is, it's, it's unfathomable to, I think, most people unless you've been through it. Yeah, well, and I think one of the good things there is they know, you know, in, in the corporate world and, you know, after I, after I got in the military, I, I, I worked in a lot of different industries for very, very big companies and small companies. And at the end of the day, no matter how important people see their job there, it's, it's money, right? Whereas right. we know, especially, I mean, anywhere in the military, but in special operations, you know, like, I mean, I was on the first ODA that officially went into uh, Niger, Africa, right? So, you know, if there's 12 of you, you're the only ones in the country besides a couple guys at the embassy. What you do really, really, you know, you, you got to be on point. You got to know for everything I do, what is the third, fourth, and fifth level effects? Am I going to get my head chopped off? There's something that we do here and have nobody come in to be able to, you know, save us from getting thrown on a pipe. So you really know that if you don't make the appropriate changes, people's lives are on the line, you know, especially when you're like that at the tip of the spear 
and there's nobody that can come help you for quite a while. <laughs> you, know, you, you really learn to take every little change that needs to be made with a lot of seriousness. All right. So you finish the Q course and, you know, obviously you're going through the medic course and everything else. And there's still some other schools there involved before you get to your first deployment, correct? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's the Q course itself is pretty long. Um, About two years. You right? know, as a medic. Yeah, well, it depends on what you do. It can be shorter sure, or longer, yeah. you know, so like the phase three is the job specific part of the Q course. So like a weapon sergeant and an engineer is uh, a little bit more compressed than an, an echo, which the communications guy is a little bit longer. And then the medic is the, is the longest. Um, and then besides that, I mean, there are tons of different schools. Typically, you graduate the Q course, you'll go to an ODA and then they will either before deployment, if you have downtime, they send off everybody to schools. And so that's one of the big differences between special operations and conventional is, you know, they have dwell time now. So like when you come back from a deployment, they, they pass those uh, regs that say, you know, if you have a year deployment, you need two years of dwell time. Uh, special operations, there's not really enough of them to do that fully. And there's just so much you have to do. So you can be gone for six month deployment come back and maybe have eight months before you rotate back. But in that eight months, you'll knock out two or three schools. Everybody mm -hmm. has to go off to these different schools and learn these different skill sets, come back and teach to the team. Uh, you've got to do all kinds of stuff to refit your equipment, order new equipment, do training, go do a J set. We go to another country and train with indigenous forces for a couple of months and then come back and maybe have a month of downtime before you go back to the sandbox. And that is why that hot tempo that's on special operations right now is just, it's, it's, it's really, really hard on guys because your downtime is never really downtime. It's uh, school and gym sets and all the other stuff that you got to do besides war. And let me add one more thing. And, and this may be people who have heard me talk to special forces medics before have said this, but if you're new to the podcast and just listening, I, I always remind everybody that special forces medics are the only people who are authorized to perform surgery without a medical degree, right? I mean, you guys are literally authorized to perform surgery in the field on somebody if it's needed. And I think that is the coolest thing and one of the most amazing jobs to learn, right? You're not a doctor, but you're going to perform surgery to save somebody's life. Did that, does that sort of responsibility, did it, now you look back on it does, it, does it ever go like, damn, man, that's like a lot to put on one person? <laughs> um, it is, but, you know, your scope of practice, is anything that you're comfortable doing, right? So one thing they, even in 18 Delta, they told us if it's not, you know, it's, if it's not life-threatening, don't touch the hands because you just don't let, you know, hand surgeons are phenomenal, right? And, and you have, there's just too many little things in the hands that you can easily screw up and, and render somebody unable to use it for the rest of their life. But everything else, we go to a lot of places that the military just can't afford to send doctors, you know, mm -hmm. and that's just what we do. And, and uh, that's the thing about 18 Deltas is there's a lot of trips, like the Africa trips, where you go do uh, med caps, where you go out to the furthest regions in a, in a part of Africa, to places where they've never seen white people before. Uh, it's, it's amazing. We have an entire village come out, and they've just never seen white people ever in their life. And you render care because that's, you know, we, we are trained to be very good at, doing that and diagnosing and, and helping people understand Americans aren't really the bad guys. Uh, and so that's kind of one of the huge things that, that an 18 Delta brings to the team. And one thing that we learned really is that, you know, 
So our job is to go in and be force multipliers. You, you train an indigenous force, whether it be a, a rebel group or something that's aligned with America against uh, leadership that you don't want in power anymore. And you get them to fight. You train them, you arm them, you equip, the, equip them, you train them to fight, you fight with them. And we learned that, you know, if you take care of a man, take care of a soldier, uh, he'll fight for you, right? And that's something you pay him. We had, we had guys in Afghanistan that straight up told us, we used to be Taliban, but you pay better, right? So if you, if you need soldiers, you can always find them for a paycheck. But if you take care of their family, you know, you go somewhere like Africa where they're not used to actually getting food every day or no medical treatment for their family, and you take care of their family, you give them some TLC, you make them meals, you make sure they're always fed, make sure their kids have shoes, you make sure they're actually getting meals, they're getting medical treatment, you actually put hands on them and make sure they're okay if they're sick and you get them the proper regimen and heal them, those guys will die for you. You know, it's, it's amazing how much that actually brings and how much you can bring to them now. And also helping people to see that America really isn't what the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or Hezbollah or all these other groups that are out there trying to fight against us, that we're not the bad people that they say we are. We're really trying to make the world a better place um, and kill all the bad guys. But it, it is something that it really goes a long way, and that's, that's why it's so important for an 18 Delta to really, really know their stuff. And it's funny, you know, after I got out, I started to go to med school. I did pre-med. I really loved it. Um, I loved the medical part of it. I had a business degree before I went in, so I had to post back pre-med and make up all those undergrad science courses that I had never taken. And I chose to uh, cut that off because my son was born halfway through, and I realized that, you know, I got out of the military to start a family, and uh, I didn't want to lose my family because I never saw them because I was in med school. Mm -hmm. uh, I chose to go the business route, but all the guys from my team still call me when their kids are sick. <laughs> before they take them to a doctor it's been 10 years since i've been in 18 delta it's been 12 years since my last medical refresher but i'm still the first guy they call if their kids get hurt if their wife is sick it's it's i gotta tell you it's something that really warms my heart like it's that's one thing you ever want something to make you let you know you did a good job and that they know you really were on your stuff that's it <laughs> it makes me pretty happy. That's pretty awesome. All right. So how quickly and when do you get to your actual first deployment? Uh, so I got a little bit of cabin fever. So I went to Germany. Um, so you have 10th group. So there are two four deployed uh, battalions and special forces. So you have first of the first in Okinawa, first of the 10th in Germany. Uh, and they're both, you could call them kind of quick reaction forces, but they split the world in two, Eastern and Western Hemisphere. And uh, Germany is a little bit different than 10th Maine proper, right? 10th Maine proper is in Colorado, and, you know, they have their deployment cycle. 110 is a little bit different. When I got there, we weren't in the uh, OIF and OEF rotation yet. So we had a lot of other J-sets where we'd go to, like, Eastern Europe. We were going down to Africa all the time and did a lot of training missions. Uh, so we were all over the place. But I really, I was a post 9-11 baby. I joined to go to war. I go, I joined to go to Afghanistan and fight. And we went in that Afghanistan rotation. Um, I got sent to Iraq to do a, 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 a month long rotation uh, before anybody else on my team. So I kind of got a taste of what it was like being in a, in a combat zone uh, being for deployed. But I really, really wanted to go back. We weren't in the cycle yet. So I put in my packet to actually go to a, uh, Delta to go to CAG and, and go do their selection. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, about a month, I think, as as my recollection recalls, it was about a month after I got approved to go to their selection, we got our, our orders that we were in the Afghanistan rotation. And so it was probably a year, I think, after I got there, maybe a year and a half that we actually started doing that. Did it bother and, you that uh, you kind yeah. of got bumped out of Delta to go to go to Afghanistan? Well, that was the thing. I also got, so uh, I had a team sergeant that wanted me to go to Ranger School. And at the same time, I got approved to go to that. And I came down in the uh, order of merit list to go to Ranger School. Order of merit list is based on what schools are available when you get to, uh, when you get to your ODA, who gets to go. So I had both of those things come up and, you know, kind of had to sit down and think about it again. But, you know, I joined the military to go to war. I joined the military to go fight. I spent two years training to actually get to get to be with the, you know, the best of the best to get with a tip of the spear and go fight. And so on the one hand, I had these opportunities to go these, do these really kind of amazing things where I would have been able to even step further into the tip of the spear, or I could actually go and fight. And I just, I didn't want to spend another year or two in school. <laughs> I wanted to go fight. So I chose to go, uh, go with him. And I was the, I had been the only medic with my ODA when I got there. We had just gotten a new one for about six months, but I didn't really want to let my team go to combat with somebody they'd only known for, you know, a short while. Right. So I chose to go put the other two off. And once I started that first Afghan rotation, it was just kind of a whirlwind. I was deployed for four years, about straight. I mean, I had, even after I left, um, when I got back from my Afghanistan trip, I left 110 to go back to 310 in, in Colorado and I had a month on the ground before I went to uh, Iraq. So it was just, it was a whirlwind to the point where I just did not have a lot of time to, to sit down. So it's, it's funny where it's one of those things where, you know, you sit there and you sit around hoping, 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 hey man, I want to go, I joined to go, I joined to go. And it's one of those, you know, okay, be careful what you wish for. Because <laughs> once I got it, I was gone. <laughs> That's unreal. So when you get to Afghanistan, what's your first mission there? I mean, is it just doing foreign internal defense? I mean, how is it unfolding? Afghanistan was an interesting one. Um, so because 110 had just got put into the rotation, we still had to figure a lot of stuff out. Uh, and the way that an ODA works, specifically with our first deployment there, was a little bit different. Um, so we basically went into a region and we divided it up amongst ODAs. So each of our ODAs had a huge swath of territory. It was kind of ours to control. But it took us a little while to figure that out. We started off and we landed in Herat, which is on the Iranian border in the eastern side of the country. And we were there for about uh, maybe two weeks. Then we got orders to go to Kabul. So we ended up in Kabul and we were on a French uh, NATO base there. Um, we spent about a month there running ops with uh, one of our groups that um, I just don't really talk about. And after we were there for a little while, we got sent out to the western border, uh, closer to the Pakistan border in, um, uh, in Bogar province. And we were actually on Fob Shank, which um, got turned over to the Afghans just a couple of years ago. So it, it differed where we were, you know, a lot. Uh, there were guys running different missions to find out what was going on in the area. You go to Kabul, it's more of a uh, urban territory, so you're doing more urban operations in there. Mm -hmm. And then we went to Logar, and, you know, all the teams kind of divided out in that region on the Pakistan side of the country. 
And that's where we start running some FED, where we actually get our groups and we start training up ANA, uh, Afghan National Army. We ran MedCAPs, but we also ran a lot of missions. Um, that's one thing that's different about Special Forces is we drive our own operations. So we go out, say you do a MedCAP, you do these different things where you go out, you meet people, you develop sources, you, you know, gather intelligence, figure out what's going on, who's the bad guys, you, you create your targeting list. And rather than being handed down a mission from our leadership saying, we want you to go get these guys in this place at this time and bring this equipment, we would send that message to our leadership and say, hey, we're going to go get these guys and here's when we're going to go and here's how we're going to do it. You go get those guys, you hit a target, you gather intelligence, take it back, you uh, put the intelligence together and you drive other missions from that intelligence that you get. So it, we, it ran the gamut. I mean, it was our Afghanistan deployment was kind of every different type of special operations mission you can imagine, which makes it fun because you get a lot, you get to try your hands on a lot of different things. Yeah, no, and again, the experience of it uh, from that standpoint sounds fun and interesting, but obviously there's still a danger aspect to this whole thing. Um, For somebody who wanted to go fight for so long, your first taste of actual combat, can you describe it? What was it like? It was interesting. Uh, I still remember the the first time that we actually got into a tick, uh, troops in contact. We we were in... um, a part of the country that at that time it was the hottest part in Afghanistan. It's called the Tagab Valley. Uh, so the way that a lot of our operations worked there was kind of, it was funny enough. It was a lot like the settlers here in this country, in the United States, um, where you would, we'd create a base and basically secure that territory. And then we would leapfrog a small element further out into enemy territory create a base, secure that area, leapfrog again, and keep going on and on and on. So while we were there, one of our ODAs um, started at Bagram and went just a little bit out into the Tagab Valley, and they literally had to go out there one night, and they formed you know, an ORP, so basically sat around in a, in a circle made of room while engineers came and built up HESCO barriers around them. So HESCO barriers, basically a really, really ba- a big kind of a bag with a uh, wire mesh around it that's filled with sand and it creates a barrier and they stack them on top of each other. So they literally built a fob in the middle of the night uh, around these guys. And uh, because they were so new and because they were in really, really hot territory, it was one of those places where every single time they left their front gate, they got in, in the contact, they got shot at. We actually uh, lost a guy pretty quickly into that uh, pretty quickly into that deployment, uh, Pat Guchbach, we lost uh, right before Christmas. And um, one of the times we went out there to kind of beef them up to help them on a couple of missions uh, that they had to run and they just didn't have enough people to go do. And we went down there and uh, they had French Foreign Legion with them. We had kind of a, a little alliance of a, of a bunch of different nations that were there to go uh, take it out, to take out these targets. And uh, we were just, same thing that always happened to them, we were probably two or three minutes, maybe five minutes outside of their gate before we started getting shot at. And I remember my first thought was, oh, God, this ain't like the movies. Where are you even shooting at us from? <laughs> that's the thing you don't realize is, you know, it's a lot different than training when you have these peltors on, which are kind of the uh, earmuffs attached to the microphone 
that you see a lot of special operations guys wearing, they are sound dampening, right? So basically the whole point is that if you shoot your gun, you can still hear the guns being shot, but it reduces the decibels, right? So say a gunfire, and I, this could be completely wrong, but say a, you know shooting your M4 is at 100 decibels, it'll dampen it down to 20. So you still hear that it's being shot, but it's much quieter. One of the downsides of that is you lose most of your directional uh, capability. Sure, yeah. right? So you can hear a sound, you just have no idea where it's coming from. And you're in the middle of Afghanistan where we have this kind of, uh, we have a wadi, a bunch of open desert, and a small village, you know, four or 500 meters away from us. And we got a little retaining wall in front of us. And so we stop, we, you know, we get out and take cover. And you're kind of looking around going, oh, they got to be over there. They're not out in the middle of the desert, but I can't see anything. And so you just basically got to get on glass, take uh, take cover, and try to identify where in the world you're getting shot from. And I just I just remember that was most of that first firefight. My thinking was, this is nothing like the movies, man. <laughs> this is nothing like what I thought it would be. <laughs> Speaking of nothing like you thought it would be, you mentioned you had lost one of your brothers uh, earlier on in the deployment. Uh, what does that do for you mentally and, and how much of it kind of, you know, changed your thinking at all, if any? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty rough, you know, cause that is one of the things is that you're trained to get the mindset that you're unventional. Uh, I mean, invincible, that you're basically, you are a war machine. You're the baddest mofo on the planet and that you, you know, you are there to kill bad guys and that's it. And that's going to happen to you. And it really, it makes it real. Um, you form a, a very close bond with, uh, with guys. And that's the thing about SF and special forces. It's not a unit. It's a family, right? Each little ODA is really like its own family. And, you know, 110, because it's such a small unit, it's one battalion. I'm thinking Germany are completely on their own. You, everybody is very close. We, did a lot of events together. We would do training together. We'd have parties together. You know, somebody has a birthday. Everybody from the unit goes over the birthday party. Very, very close, closer than a lot of people's families are. Uh, it's amazing. And so when you lose somebody, you lose one of your brothers, it really hits hard. Um, actually, on the day that they got hit, it was at, you know, it was the ODA that was in Tagab. Uh, and they not only lost Pat, but two of their leadership and one of their senior members uh, didn't die, but got injured so bad they had to be evac out of the country. Um, and so it really, it was a really, really rough day. And that's the thing there is you can't just stop what you're doing, you know, and, and sit around and mope. You've got to regroup and continue taking the fight to the enemy. And uh, we actually had just under a month later, we had operation payback where we brought the entire company together in the Tagab and we went, to go after the guys that killed Pat. And that was actually the day that I got shot. Oh, wow. So what happened there? Um, it was, well, we call it Operation Payback. So you can guess where our thinking was on that day. Uh, and the thing about Afghanistan is you're pretty low on resources. Uh, there's not a lot of airframes. So even though CAS, Combat Air Support, exists, there's not a lot of it, even if you're going into combat operations. Um, so we had a company there. We basically knew we were, they were in this village. We knew that every time these guys left their base, they were getting shot at from a specific direction. Uh, we had pinpointed the specific house 
where a lot of these guys were that were starting the biggest problem. So we decided to take the entire company in there. All the ODAs would split up and we would go do a cordon, basically close off the entire village, encircle it, find these bad guys and get them out of there. So we knew they were in the village, but you know, one of the things that happened in Afghanistan that they were brilliant at was they, they realized they could, they had an equalizer, right? Against all of our technology where we could listen to their cell phones, we could pinpoint where they were, we could do all these different things with technology. If they went old school, you know, drop letters, word of mouth, stuff like that, we really didn't have any way to track them unless we had human sources on the ground, which, you know, it's, it's tough for an, America, an American to really blend into Afghanistan and, and fit in to the point where you can be developed as an asset. So they have a lot of different old school methods. You know, there's a lot of guys where you see the old man that just sits on the corner in the middle of the village all day long, pretending to do nothing. But in reality, he's a lookout. Right? Mm-hmm. So as soon as they see Humvees, he's on his cell phone. He calls a certain guy, calls a certain guy. You know, in a lot of villages, there's only one road to go a specific way. And they know exactly where all the bad guys are. So as soon as Humvees start going that way, they call the bad guys, hey, get out of town. And those bad guys, you know, they scoot out of there. Well, same thing if you see an entire company of green grace uh, dismounted walking into your village to take over the whole thing. So we started going through it, and um, this is, yeah, this is actually the, the very first chapter I wrote in Love Me Where I'm Gone because it was something that had really been in my, on my head for years after it. We went into the village and started kind of cordoning it off. Um, you know, we went, it was my team that went directly to the house where we knew all uh, the stuff had been. Coming from, we found a huge cache of weapons, blew the weapons in place. We All the different ODAs were kind of separated and spread out at that point. And we got word, I think from a raven overhead, that there was a huge group of men massing about you know, maybe a click away from us on another part of the village. So we grouped our ODA together. We blew the cache of weapons, start walking over there. And about five minutes into it, we get ambushed just in the middle of this village. And uh, it was, it was unbelievable. It was, it was, I mean, you have 12 guys pinned down by maybe 60 or 70 fighters taking, you know, taking fire from. Did, did you know the numbers were that bad? Well, they had ravens. Okay. We had uh, ravens over, we had, uh, sorry, um, we had a platform, an ISR platform over top that was actually looking and, you know, getting imagery from the entire village so we could see everybody was massing. And so we were in that firefight. And that's the thing is it seems like it's hours, but in reality it was yeah. probably 10 minutes before the rest of the company came on and you know, we had an entire company of Green Grace fighting against these guys and just demolished them. Isn't it unreal uh, the minute that first bullet goes? Sorry, Robert, I didn't mean to cut yeah. you off. Well, that's, you know, that's, it's funny because it's one of those things that I, I still have the image to this day. I remember exactly how it started where you're just walking through the village, you're on guard, you know that there's a big group of bad guys, you think you still got 500 meters to go, walking right through the middle of the village, and all of a sudden we hear Dushka open up, right? So, And I remember seeing the foliage that they were hiding behind just ripped apart just when it starts opening up. And everybody hits the ground, and then it just turns into absolute chaos. And, and again, the, the minute that first round goes, it's like time stops. You lose all sense of how yeah. long it takes to do anything. Um, and and it, it's, yeah. it's amazing that you can recall things 
in the exact order that they happen. You just don't know when, right? Right. Well, and it's, I mean, it's kind of seared into your memory, right? It, I mean, it's absolutely that whole thing just, it's just seared there. It's something that uh, I'll probably never forget, but it's, um, it's, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty to look back on. And I think everybody has these thoughts about different firefights and different things they've done in their life that they could have done differently. They wish they had done differently. You know, if I had been, you know, three feet to the right or three feet to the left, maybe I wouldn't have actually gotten hit. You know, all these different little things. But in that moment, you do what you do. You fall back on your training and you just try to do your job, find, fix, and destroy the enemy. In all the years I've been, you know, telling stories on the hazard ground, I've never heard one person say, and I looked at my watch, right? Because everybody's wearing a watch. We all, we all wear a watch. Like we have, it's got a compass on it. It tells you, you know, your altitude. It's got all these toys on it. And in the middle of a firefight, you never stop to look at you. No one ever stops to look at their watch. It's just weird. It's, it's a, one of those weird little yeah. battles of, uh, phenomena of battle. So how exactly do you get hit? Uh, so there were, so we were in the middle of this village in kind of, um, the best way to describe it. It was almost like there were, so there was a row of buildings on one side, as we were walking, it was on our left side. There was almost um, kind of what had once been a huge garden in front of these buildings, and there were a couple of retaining walls. So we were walking through the middle of it. When we get hit, all of our team hits the ground. Half is on one side of this wall behind a different wall, and half is on the outer wall that's closer to the wadi. And, um, we were basically just exchanging fire. You know, that's trying to lay down a, a base of suppressive fire. I had a 203, so I was lobbing 203s into these windows where we saw people were shooting from and, you know, blowing them out of those windows as much as we could. And just fighting back, you know, take out the dish guard, do all those different things. And myself and my commander were next to each other with our team sergeant and another person behind this rear, the, the furthest wall. And we're just shooting, firing back and forth, and just all of a sudden, the wall explodes. I mean, and that's, I just, I remember something hit me, and I get blown out into the middle of an alley that's kind of right in the middle of firefight, and just got knocked unconscious for, who knows, again, it sounds like, it feels like 10 minutes, is probably five seconds, but completely lost consciousness, wake up in the absolute middle of firefight, not behind any cover, start crawling back. Um, get behind the wall again with my captain. Captain was down. Uh, I saw blood on him, so I start doing you know, medics. So I start doing the medic thing and trying to find the source of bleeding. Couldn't find any bleeding on him. He kind of comes back to consciousness, looks up at me, and he sees that I'm bleeding, and I'm the one bleeding on him. <laughs> and he goes, shit, bro, stop. And he goes, he goes to grab out his tourniquet, and that's the point where I realize I'm hit. And I look over, my whole left side is just blood. And he starts trying to put a tourniquet on me, but the you know medic part of my brain starts working again. Yeah, and that's got to go, be interesting, yeah. right? Like you, you know, do you know exactly where you're hitting, what the issues are, and, and how to fix yourself at that point? I didn't know where I was hit. All I saw was blood, and again, so much adrenaline going through your body that you don't even really feel it. Like I felt what I thought was a rock hit me. Apparently, it wasn't a rock, um, but. The first thing I saw, I looked down and I see dark red blood. I go, okay, sir, you don't need a tourniquet. It's dark red. It's venous bleeding. Save the tourniquet. Let's get our blowout kit. So I pull out my blowout kit, pop it for him, kind of walk him through. One of the things that we had done was I had a team sergeant who had been in the initial OIF invasion who had been around the block a lot. 
and he had made sure that every single time we had downtime, I trained our team on TCCC, on tactical combat casualty care. Mm-hmm. And so I basically, I didn't have to walk him through very much, but I was able to kind of, okay, so we just need gauze. Let's go ahead and put a pressure dressing on it. You know, cut off my sleeve, put some gauze on there, put a pressure bandage on it. And then we're still in the middle of a firefight. <laughs> so right. we just lost two minutes of the firefight. And I go, all right, sir, now we got to fight. <laughs> so we just started fighting. So where exactly were you hit? Uh, so there is still what looks like a small piece of a bullet in my left bicep. So I got hit in the left tricep and it went through and it's still kind of right in the middle of the bicep and I've got shrapnel all over my back and my uh, shoulders. Okay. And so, so what it seems like, because the, so the hole on the back of my tricep is perfectly cylindrical. So at first we thought it was shrapnel, but when the medics were, you know, when we were able to break contact, and I had two other medics that were coming and taking a look at me. It's one thing they looked at. They're like, that's not shrapnel. That's a bullet because it's perfectly cylindrical and shrapnel just typically does not do that. Sure. Um, yeah, but that's, uh, that's where all that stuff, is, it's probably what we could deduce is that the wall got hit by probably an RPG or something. So that's where all the shrapnel came from, knocked me out in the middle of an alley unconscious, probably took a round while I was laying in the middle of the alley and then called back and that was it. Was it a seven six two round? Uh, that well, they've never been able to take it out. I've been to a half dozen different orthopedic surgeons trying to get someone to take it out. Nobody will touch it because it's too close to the trigeminal nerve in my left arm. And if you accidentally nick that thing, I'll lose the ability to basically ever hold a beer can again. I don't drink anymore, so so again. So the bullet's uh, so still inside you. It's still there. Yeah, That's my unreal. kids get a kick out of it because I can actually. There's and it's can you have feel it? Mark, right by you, you can feel the point. Yeah. You, oh man. Oh, yeah. Do you go off in the metal detector? Like when they, when they, when you go through the airport, do they see it? <laughs> if they have it really, really ratcheted up, I've had one or two that it did, but typically it won't. Um, but I've had, if they really ratcheted up and it's funny cause we had a metal detector on my ODA to find uh, landmines and stuff like that. And, uh, one of our, our Charlie's thought it would be funny to use it on me. So <laughs> you got to crank it up pretty hard, but you can get it to go off. That's crazy. All right, so that's first deployment. Like, that's deployment number one. You still got a couple more. You end up going to Iraq. What's the experience in Iraq versus Afghanistan for you? Well, let's see. So the first Iraq trip was the month-long medical trip, right? So it was an 18 Delta. You have to do these things where you rotate and you go work basically in a hospital. So in the 18 Delta course, the first, first six months is all trauma. And so that's where you have uh, Green Berets, Rangers, SEALs, Marines. You got a little bit of everybody learning that six-month trauma part. At the end of that six months, you go work um, in a major level one trauma center somewhere around the country. So I went to Tampa General for a month. Um, Others go up to New York. Some go to Baltimore Shock Trauma. And then at the end of the course, you go somewhere for a month and you work on surgery. You actually go scrub in the surgeries and spend a month doing that. Uh, when I got out of the course and went to my ODA, one of our, our battalion surgeons started this rotation to Iraq where we would send medics to Balad uh, to work there for a month and basically go work in, I mean, frontline trauma surgery. So the first time I went to Iraq was a month in Balad, Iraq, doing that, sitting, you know, scrubbing in on brain surgery and traumatic amputations and all kinds of crazy stuff. 
And at the meantime, you know, Balad, uh, I was there during Ramadama Palooza, right? Ramadan, where we're just getting murdered every single day. Yep. So you're getting patients. I mean, patients with bilateral amputations. We had a guy sitting on a porta potty who got hit with a, a, a mortar round and had both of his legs lobbed off. Um, all kinds of crazy stuff. So that was the first trip to Iraq. Then I went to Africa. Uh, then I did the Afghanistan. Then I rotated back to Colorado and month on the ground, went right back to Iraq. Um, I, I didn't really like Iraq as much. I like Afghanistan. I'm a mountain guy. You know, 10th group is the mountain group. I was on a special reconnaissance team, specifically a mountain team. So I just, I love the mountains. I'm a big guy. I'm built for cold weather. Uh, so I loved it. Afghanistan, it's nice and temperate. And it's actually... It's funny, but we used to always say, man, this place is so beautiful. If it weren't for the assholes with guns, you know, this would be a great place to vacation. And um, we actually had, when I first got there, I think there was a group of Austrian mountain climbers that got kidnapped and killed by uh, the Taliban while they were there. Because they were just Austrians, not everything is good. Went to a war zone to, to climb a mountain. Uh, that's great thinking. Uh, but I, I like Afghanistan. I like the food. Um, I've always enjoyed travel, so I, I like the new experience. People were nice, except for the guys trying to kill us. Um, generally, Afghans are, are pretty nice, hospitable people. Iraqis, I didn't have the same experience. We had, uh, I mean, the guys that worked with us, our interpreters, uh, you know, our, our sources and, and the guys that were there to get us stuff were great, um, but there were it was just a totally different experience. I think it was 120 degrees the day I landed in Baghdad. Yeah, um, those were the good days. Just, <laughs> yeah, God, hot. Uh, different experience, you know, going from Afghanistan where you're doing traditional special forces, you know, get your group, train them up, arm them, equipment, go fight with them, uh, and fighting in a lot of very kind of austere conditions. Um, Iraq was different. It was very different. You know, it's urban combat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hotter. People are a lot more on edge because they're a lot more grouped together. Um, and, you know, it was, there are a lot more bad guys. Um, it was when uh, Iran was pushing a lot of uh, IEDs in there. Uh, I was there when they started pushing the force penetrators in there. Actually, my buddy Mike Tilly was cut in half by a, uh EFP uh, when uh, they were driving through Baghdad. Um, yeah, those were it's just, it's just different. Robert, man, those were that's when it was one thing to avoid an IED there. And I, I'm somebody who, you know, might have drove a couple of thousand miles on the streets of, of Iraq and Baghdad. Uh, it's just part of the nature of what I had to do there. And when EFPs came out, explosive form projectiles that were able to cut through the armor, of the Humvee. That's when we all sort of collectively clenched our buttholes going, uh, you know, we don't have an answer for this. You know, we, we, we literally yeah. don't. You know, this is a game changer for us. And and even to even to this day, even my second deployment, there were still EFPs that we didn't have an answer to. You know, there was there was that forever kind of chess match. You know, the enemy would do this, and then we would adjust to that. And then they would adjust to us, and we would adjust to them, and round and round we go. But we didn't, we, to my knowledge, we never found an answer for EFPs. Right. Yeah, and that's, you know, we had jammers. We had stuff that could take Yeah, they never worked, though. Oh, bullshit. They never worked. (laughs) My jammer never worked. And the only thing it did was kill my actual own radio signal. Right. Yeah, we had had a really uh, a spot-on combo guy that was able to run an iPod through our internal comm system so we could listen to music Mm the whole time we were rolling around. But you lose all signals for everything else as soon as you turn those damn jammers on. Um, And that that was really, like, I've had 
a lot of buddies that we lost to IEDs, that we lost to EFPs. I had to, you know, take care of a lot of guys that lost limbs uh, because of those things. And yeah. we killed the guy that brought him into Iraq. Like, the freaking gall of people to say that it was bad to take that dude out. Uh, I'm sorry, but Soleimani dying was a good day for the world. That really, and every American should be rejoicing. I mean, it's, that was a bad dude. No, and no doubt about it. And I can remember, you know, we, we would get these reports, you know, because they would have the post-blast reports, you know, done by the the, uh, uh, the EOD guys and everything else. You'd get the report on, you know, what it was and, and everything. And you'd see the pictures and, and literally a Humvee door, like, was just melted. It's almost like something out of Hollywood, the way it melted through a yeah. Humvee door. And you're sitting here going, holy shit. Like, you know. Yeah, uh, my buddy Mike... Uh, yeah, my buddy Mike was, uh, he was in the gunner's turret of, of his Humvee and, um, EFP hit it and it literally cut him in half. That's just insane. I mean, that's, those things are just gnarly and it's, it really is. I mean, it's, it's a terrible thing and you're right. We had no answer to it and it's, it, and I'm glad that, that that guy's gone. And you know, the, I think it was the army time, the, the military conducted a pretty big study and the Army Times uh, put that study out a few years ago, and the title of the study in the article was uh, "The Only Winner in Iraq Was Iran," you know, because they put so much in there to try to destabilize our operations and basically try to bleed us dry. Uh, and the the fact that most Americans don't really realize that a lot of Americans think in Afghanistan we're fighting Afghan Afghanis and the Taliban, and in Iraq we were fighting Iraqis and, and Al Qaeda and all that stuff. And the fact that most people don't realize, no, they were proxy wars. I mean, they really were. It's a huge petri dish. Okay, anybody that wants to take a shot at America, go ahead and send your fighters over here, and hey, have at it. I mean, Chechens, uh, everybody, everybody from all over the world, Iranians, a lot of Al Quds, Hezbollah. Everybody that wanted to take a shot at America was there. Uh, and just most Americans really still don't grasp that we weren't fighting Iraqis and Afghanis. You know, and that's how the Pakistani ISI owned the Taliban. You know, people still just don't really quite get that. Well, because they think of war in a linear sense, right? I mean, it's yeah, good yeah. guys versus bad guys. And because we're in Iraq, it must be the bad guys are Iraqi. And, you know, again, uh, they also fail to neglect that. You know, we are a military that currently, um, and even prior to 9-11, was operating in as many as 40 countries, on the high end, 80 countries in the world at the same time, um, all right. looking for bad guys, all fighting bad guys who weren't necessarily of that country. And again, Osama bin Laden is the easiest case. That dude <laughs> was not Afghanistani. I mean, he, he grew right. up in Saudi Arabia, um, but he made his living as a terrorist in Afghanistan. So uh, it's just the... What the public doesn't know, um, you know, you could put in the size of the Grand Canyon, but in the same respect, you know, the, the information passage nowadays is so great and there's so much access to information. And I think a lot of it just gets convoluted and conflated into things that it's not. And, you know, even me as somebody who's a member of the media, the media distorts a lot of what is out there that is completely, you know, misleading on purpose. Yeah. Well, that's the other rub of it, right? You have a lot of people that got caught with their, their hands in the cookie jar, and so they try to distort the reality, right? And so there's uh, Amber Lyon. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. She's a former CNN uh, journalist who came out maybe 10 years ago and was blowing the whistle and telling people that CNN was actively taking money from different countries who wanted to keep bad news about their country out of the press. 
right? So Bahrain was a big one. The, uh, we had the Arab Spring take over a lot of the Middle East. It was huge in Bahrain. Bahrain, the government was just executing people in the streets by the hundreds, but you never heard about it here because the Bahraini government was paying CNN not to report it. You've got the same thing with Qatar. You've got the same thing with Iran. You've got a lot of the same, you've got a lot of the same with a lot of these different countries. And they can take down people that they don't want politically for FARA violations, but for some reason they're not going to go after the media here who basically puts out outright propaganda to deflect attention away from people who did very bad things. In my personal opinion, downright treasonous things, working with our enemies against either the American public knowing what really happened or knowing who really was at the bottom of some of these things. People still don't know that bin Laden lived in Iran for a time, right? That Iran sheltered him when he was in hiding for a while. Like, the fact that Americans don't know that and realize just how much Iran really is the enemy of America, and that a former president gave him billions of dollars that then got funneled into attacking Americans, just, it's treasonous, in, in my personal opinion. To that end, you know, you and I have discussed politics a lot on Twitter and we've entered into conversations and, you know, uh, being that social media is what it is, anybody's free to comment on whatever. But, you know, I'm just curious of your opinion. You spent eight years in the military, you deployed all over the world multiple times. When you look back on that experience, given the landscape of where we are now, um, and again, I, I always say this on the podcast about wars, you know, it's easy to say won or lost for people who weren't there because they have no skin in the game. But given the battles that you have been through and fought and everything else, was it worth it? Are, are we in a position to say we're, we're a better, safer country now than before? I mean, how do you measure it? Yeah, well, that's the thing. You look, so there, there's so many different ways to look at that, right? right. Blood, and, blood and treasure, right? The amount of money that we spent and the amount of great, brave Americans that have died, is that ever worth it? Well, it depends. You know, it depends on how much you really value um, what we do. You know, and one of the things that really chaps my ass is that the media, so there have been studies and reports that came out and basically verified, we did find WMDs in Iraq. We found them. We found them in the beginning. Of course we, we did. They were there, but we, yeah, but the media, they spent so much time attacking George Bush and conservatives about that that they just let that one slip by and don't really tell people. So people still parrot that, you know, and at the end of the day, that is, again, like I'm the most patriotic guy in the world and I, you know, don't think one American dying is really worth it, right? We don't want to die for our country. We want to, we want to let them die for their country. Right? That's, that's the ultimate objective there. Um, but the fact is we got a terrible, terrible demon of a human being out of power. And, you ever really want to know, like, there are some people that kind of wash just how bad Saddam was under the table because they want to basically say that the Iraq war was a terrible in America as a horrible warmonger, like we're the first country in human existence to ever go and fight wars. Like every other major uh, nation on the planet hasn't been a colonizer at some point. Um, but Saddam Hussein, if you ever want to know just how bad and evil he was, there's a great movie called The, Devil, the Devil's Double. Uh, about an Iraqi special forces guy that became the body double for one of his sons. And it's a great movie. It's never, you know, never released in theaters, but it really is a good one. It, and it depicts just how terrible those people were and the way that they ruled. They would, one of his sons went to a wedding, 
crashed a wedding. I don't, I can't remember if he was on the run or something, but he just went and crashed a wedding, murdered the, the brand new groom, just murdered him at his wedding, took the wife and did what he did with her and then killed her. And that was a rare occurrence for those people that like they led a country. They used their religion to put an iron fist on their nation, but they were drug addicts. They were alcoholics. They had prost. I mean, just terrible, terrible people. And so to get rid of somebody like that, that was in charge of the country and just leaving a trail of blood in their wake. When I was in Iraq, that's one of our bases was, you know, we turned their, uh, his castles in Iraq into our bases. Right. So yeah, I was there. Baghdad. I was yeah, there. And it was, they were beautiful. Rod Bonilla, but right? One thing is, RPC? Uh, which one? RPC, Robin yeah, RPC. Yeah. yeah, RPC. That's where I, I was. Yeah. You had great burgers. Oh, great yeah, fantastic. Burgers. Fantastic. I'll, I'll always remember those. <laughs> but that's the thing. You'd go, so we'd be, you know, out on the line, and we'd come back there to refit, to do our intel dumps, to do all that stuff. And by the way, there was a great uh, bootleg liquor store um, about a 10-minute drive from RPC that we used to uh, just The, the one on the back end of the airport, the right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I've been there. <laughs> yeah, they had a great little morale operation. It, it was, you know, so, some Newcastle beer, a couple of bottles of Jack Daniels, everything was great. Oh, yeah, it was great. And, of course, you have contractors that can afford Blue Label, so everybody got to enjoy that stuff. Yeah, well, the contractors um, had their own little thing going on as well, but different discussion yeah. for oh, a different yeah, day. Well, that's Green Berets are great at bartering, man. So once you got booze, you can get It's the one thing I learned in that world. You know, you can you can find what you're looking for if you look hard enough. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that was one of the really, really funny things is, you know, so back to Afghanistan and Iraq, too. But a lot of the high level, you know, the narrative from the media and from politicians was that, OK, our soldiers cannot drink because it's a dry country. Muslims, they don't drink. They don't believe in it. Alcohol is outlawed. But every high level engagement we did with a politician, a general, you know, anybody on the other side from the Afghans and the Iraqs, that first Bursting at the meeting. Okay, with the booze. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, and, and they eat oh, pork okay. too, by the way. They, they eat pork. Don't, don't oh, let yeah. them fool you. Oh, yeah. They will. It's, it's yeah. you know, yeah. they're not as holy as we made them out to be in the media. Right. Yeah. Just like us, but, you know, we still be Catholic and eat meat on Fridays, right? So, right. So, okay. us lapsed Catholics but don't care. That, to see that contrast, like to, you know, be out on in the sticks and be around our fighters who can't, they don't have two sticks to rub together. They take a shower once every week. They're wearing, wearing clothes that are years old. They barely have enough to feed their families. And then go back to RPC and see one of the, was it hundreds of castles that, that Saddam and his family had? Mm-hmm. Just to really understand how much they were raping and pillaging and murdering. I mean, once you know how that guy took power, basically well, just going to the parliament and murdering people and saying, okay, you're with me or you're going to die right now. You could drive I mean, around Baghdad and anything that was rich and opulent, you could tell Saddam wanted it that way. Anything that wasn't, yeah. he wanted it poor, and that's the way it stayed. I mean, it was clearly yeah. obvious between the haves and the haves-nots. Yes. And so that's, you know, you look at was it worth it, that guy would have never stopped he would have never stopped, and he had WMDs. He would have used them. He would have used them on his own people if it served his purpose. He definitely would have used them on Israel or us or any of our enemies or anybody who got in his way of getting what he wanted. So in that respect, yes, I think there were a lot of ways that we could have done it better. That's for sure. Um, but at the end of the day, it had to be done, and we were the only ones that were going to do it. 
you know, and that's, you'll, you'll see people on both sides of the argument. Um, and again, there's a lot of misinformation out there specifically about the war, how we got into it, what happened when we were there, where the money went, right? But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we got rid of a very, very bad, not even a human, a demon. We got rid of a very, very bad thing uh, that needed to go. So let me ask you, and this is just, you know, Robert Lewis's personal opinion. I'm not asking for any sort of official or political or whatever. Um, where we are now, still in Afghanistan, uh, whether people want to believe it or not, I mean, the largest State Department in the world in Iraq, there's over 2,500 green suitors, people in uniform in Iraq right now, even though we told everybody that they're gone, they're still there. Um, but to that end, in the war on terror, what's our responsibility at this point? Like just from a guy who's who's been through hell and back and, and have seen some of the, the worst parts of war, where do you sit on where we are now? And is it still our responsibility to be doing what we're doing? That So that's, this is specifically where I get really hard to put into a political ideological kind of box, right? Because I'm naturally very, very libertarian where I think government is the most corrupt machine ever invented by man. Like all government, its only thing is to basically try to wield authoritarian power. So I think government, I think government should be very limited. I really think government should be limited. However, most libertarians think in that respect, we should not ever do anything outside of our nation's borders. But I firmly believe that the best defense is a strong offense. And there are a lot of bad guys out there that need to be taken care of. And it is in our best interest for national defense to have a lot of these people who chant death to America wiped from existence. Um, I like Trump's tack. I really like the way that he's doing it. Like if you don't have to put troops on the ground, hit them with an airstrike. We've put so many billions, trillions in the technology to be able to do that. And we have special operations who are the best in the world. I mean, it's phenomenal. Once, when you live and walk around these kind of giants of men for enough time, and I'm not including myself in that group, there are, I mean, the guys that I met there just blew my mind every single day. Yeah. And those guys that are still there that are doing it, the guys that have been in special operations for 20 years, conventional guys that have been around for 15, 20 years, and they're on their 10th deployment, they are the best in the world at what they do. And there are groups, we don't have to do these huge blue on red engagements anymore. So I think we need to protect our interests. We need to protect our nation. But I like what Trump is doing, where if you don't have to put boots on the ground, well, okay, anytime you see an airstrike, there's boots on the ground somewhere. There's a recon team out there raising the target or mm-hmm. keeping eyes on, doing BDA, verifying we got who we got. There are people that need to be on the ground. But if you don't need a full-scale invasion, if you don't need 10,000 troops, don't do it. Protect our interests, but also protect our soldiers and and leave them for when we really need them. Because, you know, in the military, they say you're always fighting your last war, right? So post-Vietnam, we were training everybody to fight the jungle. Post-World War II, we were training everybody to fight World War II, big, huge unit tactics. And then now, post-Iraq and Afghanistan, we're training everybody to fight based on those tactics. So uh, just by Murphy's Law, we're going to go back to a big blue and red war, right? That's going to be the next one. Just because that's the way it goes. You can never quite be prepared. Um, and that means we need our people. We need our people ready. We need all of our equipment. And I really like what Trump's doing there, where he's investing to truly make us the best military in the world again, the best trained, the best equipped, the best prepared. 
but to not engage the full might of the United States military unless it's needed, right? If France has something that their military can do, let them do it. And if if we can take it out with an airstrike like you did at Soleimani, do it, rather than sending an entire unit out there and, and just taking that chance, no matter how small, that we're going to lose American lives, let's use technology where we can. You know, if we've got to put boots on the ground, do it, but unless we absolutely need to, uh, I don't think it's. I don't think we should. So protect our interests, protect our nation, um, but also protect the lives of our soldiers. And if you can do it without complete intervention and invasion, do it. But keep that knife sharp. Keep it as sharp as it can be, so that if we ever do need to go back and uh, do a, a full-scale operation again, we're ready, we're equipped, we're ready, and we're able. I uh, I wanted to ask you. Um, as we sort of wind down here, just because I think it's a worthwhile story, your book, Love Me When I'm Gone, uh, was your first book, and it's a, a true story based on your actual life. And, uh, you know, sometimes I just kind of like to peel back some of the emotional layers of this, but it's uh, it ends in how you met your wife and, and you married each other and everything else. I'd just like you to share some of that story if you can. I know it's hard to encapsulate all of it in one shot, but you, you give it your best go. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that what I think was a very kind of unique part of our story. And unfortunately, that's a, that's a part of the story that doesn't get told. Um, there's a lot of great books out there about uh, some just great, amazing Americans that have done some phenomenal things. Um, but a lot of the focus is always on that guy fighting the war. One of the things that doesn't get told enough is just how important that family is at home. You know, like, what are you fighting for? You know, and that's such an important integral piece of the fight altogether. Um, my team sergeant used to have this saying that I thought was hilarious, but perfectly succinct. Uh, if mama ain't happy, Joe ain't happy. Right. So that's mm-hmm. the thing. If, if you have uh, a wife or a girlfriend or a fiance or even, you know, family, somebody at home, uh, if your family life is in turmoil, you're not going to be combat effective. Right. You know, you might be there, but you're not going to be 100 percent. Uh, and so I thought that that was a part of the story that really needed to be told. Um, she and I went through, uh, we went to high school together. We grew up together in Houston. Uh, then we separated for a while and, uh, got back together when I was in the Q course, we had got off to colleges at different sides of Texas. And then we got back into contact. I think right when I got back from SEER school, which was funny because it was right at the end of the Q course. So I basically spent two years just gone, living in the woods, not really able to talk to anybody. And then right when I get back and I'm done and I'm ready to go up to Germany, we get back into contact. Um, and so we spent that last month together before I uh, shipped out to Germany and uh, fell in love and uh, got together. And uh, the rest of our relationship for the next five years was not just long distance, but extreme long distance. Right? Yeah, yeah. I was in Germany. She was in Los Angeles and I was stationed in Germany, but you know, I was in Germany for several years and I was probably only in Germany for several months, right? So I was bouncing back and forth between Africa and Iraq and Afghanistan and all these J sets and coming back to the U S for training and that. Um, there's a very strict rule where if you're in Germany, if you're in 110, you can't go domestic. You can't go back to the U S for like a three or four day trip. You know, if there's a, you get a lot of three and four day weekends uh, in the military when you have downtime, just to make sure you can really take advantage of that time when you're home. But because 110 
the way that it's built, there's a lot of, hey, we need to we need to be at the airport in an hour to get on a plane and go to wherever we got to go. You're not supposed to go back to the U.S. However, uh, I knew that if I was going to make the relationship work, we couldn't just see each other every six to eight months. So every time we had one of those three to four day weekends or we'd be back training in the U.S., I'd hop on a plane uh, and go back to see her in L.A. And she came out to Germany a couple of times. But I got really good at being able to be on that, I think it was 13-hour flight, spend about 18 hours on the ground, and then get back on a plane and fly back to Germany to be in time for formation on Monday, Tuesday morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's what kept the relationship alive. But it was, that was the thing. At the end of the day, when, we, um, when I finished my last deployment, um, I kind of got the inkling again where I wanted to go to selection. Uh, I either wanted to go to uh, Delta or I wanted to go to... Uh, a different group that I had been to a briefing for and really, really piqued my interest. But uh, one thing that she had said when um, <clears throat> when I was, you know, going through that decision making process is she said, "Hey, I, you know, I, I dated you uh, while you're a Green Beret. Uh, I'm not going to marry a Green Beret. And uh, if you trade what you're doing now for something even more dangerous, where I can talk to you even less, uh, I'm not going to start a family with you under those conditions. I just don't want my kids to." grow up never seeing their dad or possibly losing their dad. Um, and having lost my mom as a preteen, I really, all I ever wanted, I was adopted and then, you know, lost my mom. So all I ever wanted was a family of my own. And, uh, after, you know, several combat deployments and, you know, purple heart and all that, I, I thought, okay, well, it's, it is time for a family. You know, and so that was the thing that ultimately got me out. I uh, was getting out to start a family with her and, I wish there was a happy ending, but we're actually divorced now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was, we had two kids, um, and uh, we you know, both live out here and we share time with them. But that was a big part of the book was you know, telling that part of the story. is not just the fight, but what is it that you're fighting for and um, just how difficult it is under those circumstances for both sides, for both the soldier that's trying to make a relationship work and the better half uh, that's sitting at home and worrying, you know, Thankfully, we had satellite phones on ODA, so I could call her um, whenever I got an opportunity. The day that I got shot, I got to call her from the hospital and say, hey, uh, I'm okay. I'm alive. Can you please call my family just in case something comes out on the news? And just let them know that I'm all right. I'm, you know, I'll be back in, back, at, uh, back in action tomorrow. But it just it doesn't get told enough. That, that side of the story, and it's, it's integral. No, because again, if if Joey, if Mama ain't happy, Joey ain't happy. Right. <laughs> it's a huge part of it. No, hundred um, percent. Any regrets on it? No, you know that's. I've tried to live my life by the mantra of I don't ever want to be on my deathbed uh, regretting anything. I don't want to sit on my deathbed and say, "Geez, you know, I really wish I had blank." Um, so despite all this stuff, you know, I've lost over a dozen friends. Uh, I've got hero bracelets uh, for all these guys that lost that I lost, but they lost doing something they believed in and something they loved. Uh, it hurts, you know. Every um, every Memorial Day, you know, I've got a list of guys' names that I read off. Um, that you know, it, it hurts to know these guys and know who they were and what great human beings they were. That they're not with us anymore. Um, to have the stuff that we went through that um, I'll never be able to really forget. Um, to just know that, that that kind of evil exists in humanity. You know, some of the stuff that we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, and North Africa, just knowing 
that that is there. You know, my ability to have faith in humanity, my cynicism uh, is at probably a much different level than most people, just because I've seen it. I've seen just how dark people can get. Um, But those experiences really forged me. Like I, I, tell people I grew up in special forces. I mean, that the guys that were on my first ODA, the guys that had been around for a while that really taught me the ropes that taught me how it works. That was my childhood almost like that was where I really grew up. That was where I learned about life and I learned about the world and you can't trade that for anything, you know, like that, just the, the guys that were there, the guys that I was with, you know, the, the things that I got to do, you know, as a young unmarried man with no kids, I got to travel the world uh, with a gun and go do stuff that I got to jump out of planes and hunt bad guys for them. Like, who, who wouldn't love that? Um, so I wouldn't trade it for anything. I don't have any regrets. And it's worth, you know, every bad thing that that happened or came from it is, is worth all the good stuff. Uh, the memories that I got and the experiences that I got and just that kind of, steel spine and, and hard outer shell that it forged uh, is totally worth it. To that end, you're working on a new book as well. Uh, you want to tell us about it? Yeah. So um, I never in my wildest dreams thought writing would be my thing. <laughs> I just, I wasn't an English major. I was a business major. Uh, it, it just never was. But uh, after I got out, I had, you know, I had some issues. I had a lot of stuff. I thought about that day that uh, I got hit uh, a lot. I had dreams about it and stuff like that. And uh, I sat down and started writing it out. Uh, At first, when we found out that my son was going to be born, uh, it started off as just a collection, right? So the first day, my initial counseling with my team sergeant on my first ODA, at the end of our conversation, at the end of our initial counseling, he said, hey, start a journal because your life's about to get a lot more interesting. So I did. I just made little notes, you know, to keep everything in order of where we went, and, you know, Africa this day and Florida this day and Scotland this day and Iraq this day. And, that. and so when I got out, we realized that we were pregnant with my first son. I wanted to write something that was not just for me, but for all the guys on my team, something that we could hand off to other kids one day and say, hey, this is what your dad and his friends did. These are all these different experiences we had. And as I started writing it out, I wrote that first chapter, the very first chapter. The first chapter I wrote was actually chapter 19 in the book um, about the day that I got hit. And I started writing it out. And every time I would finish a chapter, I would send it back to my team and go, hey, guys, is this the way that it happened? Is all this accurate? Is this the way you remember it? And at the end of it, a couple of the guys went, hey, you know, this, this is more than for us. This is actually, I think this is something for everybody. You got to put this out there. And I realized like that, the kind of cathartic experience I had from getting it out, from getting it off my chest, from actually putting it down on paper, uh, I fell in love with. And I've always been a really creative guy. And uh, we had a lot of discussions between my team. You know, we'd hang out, we'd talk all the time. And we saw all these different things going on around the world. And the guys at my team got together one night and we had some adult beverages. And we started talking about you know, why hasn't the U.S. ever been invaded before? Uh, okay, so if it were going to be invaded, who would do it? If it was going to happen right now, who would do it? How would they do it? More importantly, what would we do if the U.S. was invaded by our enemies? And that marinated in my head for a while, and I just finished the first book, and and I sat down, and I just kind of as an exercise started writing that out. Like, what would we do if the U.S. was invaded by 
Russia, Iran, uh, China. Uh, what would we, what would ODAs are to do? What would these guys, what would we do? And I just started writing it out and I just caught on fire and actually ended up writing The Pact, um, which was my first fiction book based on that conversation I had with my old ODA. And I just fell in love with it and people really, really liked it. Uh, so I kept at it. So I, the last, the second book in the pack trilogy was uh, published last February. So the first book is kind of, it's a fictional tale of um, the first month post-invasion, right? So it's the, the actual day that the U.S. is invaded by Russia, Iran, and China, and kind of that first month of how we come together and start fighting back. The second book is actually all of America, all these different groups of rebels coming together with reflective military and fighting back on a national scale. And I'm fish, finishing up book three right now, which if you know anything about the operation, uh, the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, in World War II, it's kind of fashioned after their experiences. And it's where we come together and, and actually go to the homelands of the people who invaded the U.S. and wage war on their own home fronts. So it's been, um, it's been a lot of fun. It's kind of my way of reliving those days. Like even though I left the military, it's kind of my way to get that out and, you know, having my understanding of my understanding of the political environment and all these different things that are going on. There are a lot of people that see a lot of tie-ins between what has happened in this country over the last 10, 15 years and what is happening now. And these books as the book, the first one was kind of, my projection of what would have happened in the United States if we had stayed on the same course we were on, where we were, you know, starting to dismantle the military, not having enough ammo for the guys, leaving a completely poor southern border, you know, having corrupt politicians selling our nation's secrets to our enemies. Um, it was my projection of what would have happened. So a lot of people see mm-hmm. a lot of tie-ins between actual current events and, uh, and you know, it's fiction. It's fiction based in reality, and a lot of these things that I knew about the kinds of Chinese hackers trying to hack into our infrastructure here, and you know, the things that Russia was doing, and things that Iran was doing to destabilize their operations. So even though it's fiction and it's a lot of fun, there's a lot of reality in it. Well, Robert, I know we glossed over a lot of your story because there's so much to it that it's hard to get into a lot of the the minutia and the finite details of things, but certainly. From what you've told me, and certainly, you know, the honesty and, and the amount of, uh, you know, passion you have for your story and, and what you've gone through is clearly evident. Um, you know, I, I know you still got that warrior spirit on the inside, and uh, I, I love what you do uh, now in your post-military life, um, you know, an advocate, and uh, you're still making appearances on Fox News and uh, other media outlets and things of that nature, so I wish you continued success with that, but... Certainly, brother. I mean, uh, thank you for all you've done. Thank you for your commitment to uh, not only the military, but post-military life and veterans and everything else. And certainly thank you for being part of the Hazard man. Hey, yeah. Thank you, brother. And thanks for, you know, you're interviewing some, I've listened to some of the other, some of the other interviews you've done with some amazing guys. And, you know, that's one of the things is that a lot of these stories really help a lot of other people, you know, that our military is only as good as the people that are going into it. Um, and I think that's a great thing. There's a lot of people that have reached out to me since I started writing the books, asking me like, saying, Hey, I, I thought about going to the military. I thought about going to special forces. Can you tell me a little bit about it? What should I do to get ready for selection? And so there are a lot of people out there that may be on the fence. And every time they hear something like this, it might be the thing that makes them 
really decide to answer the nation's call and, and pick up the uniform and go fight for their country. And mm-hmm. so it's great that guys like you are actually helping get the word out there and, and helping people understand what they need to be prepared for, uh, but also what a great experience it is and some of the things that you know, you'll, you'll learn in the military that you'll never learn anywhere else, never in civilian life. So it's, great. it's one of the best compliments we get in some of the comments and people say, listen, I've decided to join the military after hearing some of these podcasts that this is what I want to do with my life. And that to us is something we never expected when we started this. We, we weren't trying to be a recruiting post or anything like that. We just wanted to tell people's story because there's so many out there that nobody's ever heard of. Not everybody's story gets made into a book or a movie or, or anything like that, even though you wrote your own story, but you get my point. Um, but to hear that people are inspired by hearing other people's story, that to us is, you know, it's nirvana, man. It's, it's the pinnacle of what we can do. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's, it's helping everybody. Robert Patrick Lewis, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground, brother. Hey, thanks for having me, brother. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Cox can help make your home smarter and your life easier. Now you can use your Contour voice remote to connect to your home life cameras so you can view them right on your TV screen using simple voice commands. That makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening around your home right from your couch. Need to keep an eye on the kids when they're playing outside? Just say, show me my backyard camera into your Cox voice remote and watch them while you're in the house. And if you're waiting for a delivery and want to make sure it's there on time, no problem. Just say, show me driveway camera to check on it with your Home Life HD cameras on the TV screen while you go about your day. When you live in a home powered by Cox Internet, you can stay connected to what matters and let Cox take care of the rest. To learn more about all the benefits of your connected home, visit cox.com slash thisishome today.